the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we take your calls and we answer your questions about the things you care the most about. And, of course, because it is the program called Crosswalk, it really is the intersection of Christian faith and Christian living. This is the program where doctrine meets duty and belief meets behavior. This is the program with you in mind where we try to ask and find answers to the questions that you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible. We also talk about philosophical kinds of questions. Why are we here? Or even more fundamental, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, How did we get here? Where are we going? 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program and happy to take your calls, 303-873-1935. Uh, Producer Jim is standing by to take your call and um, we'll, we'll make every effort to get your, your question on the program. Just a couple of quick things. Jim Dennison has an interesting uh, article that he's posted at, at Christian head at, at Christian headlines. And of course, um, we know that the Ukrainian delegation and the Russian delegation met in Turkey today to talk about peace or trying to find a pathway to peace or at least cease fire. Russia said it would, quote unquote, sharply reduce attacks near Kiev, <clears throat> Ukraine's capital, and on Chernev a city in the north, but the United States remains skeptical. And a Russian strike in another uh, Ukrainian city destroyed a large portion of the regional government building, killing at least nine people. Oil prices dropped today, which may be good for gas prices, and stock prices jumped on news of this Ukrainian-Russian talk. And, of course, if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. And um, when I was looking at the article that's been posted by my friend Jim Dennison, the title of the, the article is interesting in and of itself where in the article that he's posted at both at Christian Headlines and at the Denison Forum, it says, God's judgment on sin is sure. <clears throat> and then he, he gives this uh, metaphor, if you will. He says, according to CNN, Florida's got yet another spring breaker in town. Scott, a massive great white shark, has been recorded swimming off the Gulf Coast. He says that the shark measures over 12 
feet long and weighs 1,600 pounds. And then he says, a massive great white shark swimming just offshore feels like a metaphor for much that's happening in our culture, from rising inflation to a more contagious version of COVID-19 to a deepening of partisan divisions. He says, quote, but of course the shark that dominates the news each day and has captured so many of our hearts is the horrific invasion of Ukraine and the untold suffering that it's producing and then he talked about the face-to-face talks that I alluded to earlier between Ukraine and Russia. And many analysts are asking how Russia's aggression in Ukraine will end. The assumption, of course, being that it will end. Some of the analysts have said, at this point, even if you gave the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, an exit strategy that he wouldn't take it. And um and then he talks about a New York a New Yorker article entitled What is Putin Thinking? And I I made reference to this um <clears throat> weeks ago with uh Joel Rosenberg, but David Rem, Remnick has uh posted an article at the New Yorker um And he points back to the failure of democracy in Russia after 1991's fall of the USSR. Oligarchs bought up the country's most valuable state enterprises and then made their fortunes while people struggled. One historian said at the time, quote, these last four or five years in Russia have produced little besides pure hysteria. In response, when Putin came to power in 1999, he set up what Remnick calls, quote, a personalist regime built around his patronage and absolute authority. Hence the idea of a rise of imperialist Russia and a decline, if you will, of ideological socialism. And so he also cites thinkers like Nikolai Berdyaev and Ivan Ilyin, who believed in the exalted destiny of Russia and the artificiality of Ukraine, both of whom were extremely influential for Putin. And then cultural commentator Andrew Sullivan takes us further back into history in his book, The Strange Rebirth of Imperial Russia. And Jim Dennison says he cites Russian intellectuals who claim after the fall of the Soviet Union that Russia is not just a nation state, but a civilization state. And Sullivan explains that this is, quote, a whole way of being, straddling half the globe, wrapping countless other nations and cultures into Mother Russia's spiritual bosom, unquote. This worldview claims that Russia has always had such a civilizational destiny and mission which the West sought to counter and sought to undermine. And he said that, Alexander Dugan popularized these theories in his Foundations of Geopolitics, which Sullivan calls perhaps the best guide to understanding where Putin is coming from. Now, again, that book, Alexander Dugan's book, Foundations of Geopolitics, is required reading in Russian schools. And then he says, in light of this worldview... Putin proposed a 2011 Eurasian Union to counter the European Union to reject 
the strategic control of the U.S. and then resist Western liberal values, his invasion of Ukraine is but the next step in his passion to rebuild imperial Russia. But again, now in the article, you and I can ask that question, what is this deep divide? What is this fundamental way of looking at reality that Putin thinks about? Because again, many analysts are basically saying Putin has come to see himself as Russia and Russia has come to see herself as Putin. And so how in the world do we go forward? And in this article, Jim Dennison says, in Romans 1, we read that God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He's quoting Romans chapter 1, verse 28. This is the permissive judgment of God, where he allows us by the consequences of our misused freedom to go forward. And so tragically, the innocent are often harmed by these consequences as well. Well, it just so happens that I've been doing a lot of thinking on this subject in Romans chapter 1. And so I'll have more to say about this when we come back. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Happy to take your call. 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. We're talking about Jim Dennison's uh, article that he has posted at ChristianHeadlines.com and, and at, at the, um, at the cr- Christian Forum. But one of the things that, um, that he... The, the headline, of course, is God's judgment on sin is sure. And um, <clears throat> what he basically talks about is that there is this global consequence for sin. There's a civilizational consequence. There's a nation, even a community, even a family, even a personal consequence for sin. Um, he says, if nations and people don't repent, then God moves to his punitive judgment, whereby he works directly to punish sin and lead sinners to repentance. And we saw that in the plagues of Egypt, the divine judgment against King Herod, for instance, in Acts chapter 12, where he lets his speech go to his head and he winds up being eaten by worms. And then the cataclysmic judgments that are talked about in the book of Revelation. And then, of course, God's judgment of the nations. God will judge the nations. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. It's plausible that Russia 
might be experiencing God's permissive judgment on its immoral invasion. If Putin persists, he and his people could see God's punitive judgment. Here is what we can know about the question. In Proverbs 11, verse 21, it says, An evil person will not go unpunished. Proverbs 11.21, an evil person will not go unpunished. And of course, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, which basically says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And again, whether this adjudication, the dispensement of justice is going to take place in part here in this world or in part there in the next world, God is in fact going to judge. And so in Hebrews 9.27, it basically says God's judgment is sure. And so we have an article at gotquestions.org on this very subject. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about when God will judge us? 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. And of course, at our article at Got Questions, Your Questions, Biblical Answers, there are two separate judgments. Believers are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. So you've got two large groups, believers and unbelievers. And by believers and unbelievers, I mean those who have received Christ as their Savior and those who have not. So believers are judged at the judgment seat of Christ according to Romans chapter 4, 14, verses 10 through 12, where it says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will confess to God. So according to the scripture, every believer gives an account of himself or herself. The Lord will judge not just what we've done, but the things that we've thought and the decisions that we've made, including those decisions on the issues of conscience. This judgment doesn't determine salvation, which is by faith alone, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So when the believer stands before the judgment seat of Christ, or what some have called the bema, or that place of judgment, the bema seat taken from uh, 1 Corinthians, um, that it is there that the believer gives an account of their lives in service to Christ. And so when we think about that, our position in Christ is the foundation spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, 
So Jesus is the foundation of having a right relationship with God. It says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day of judgment will disclose it. The idea we build upon the foundation with the metaphor, gold, silver, precious stones. Good, these are the good works. These are the good things that we've done in the name of Jesus, in obedience, in a manifestation of fruitfulness in our life. Because we've dedicated our spiritual service to glorify God, build the church, or what we build on the foundation may be wood, hay, stubble. That means it's worthless, frivolous, shallow, superficial. Paul is making the point. He's contrasting and comparing that which has value and that which has no value. And what Paul is arguing is that the judgment seat of Christ reveals what has value or what does not have value. And so the gold, silver, and precious stones in the lives of believers will survive the refining fire of verse 13. Believers will be rewarded based on good works, how faithfully we served Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, how we obeyed the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, how victorious we were over sin, Romans 6, 4, how we controlled our tongue, James chapter 3, verse 1, etc. So again, when you ask and you answer the question, on what basis are we rewarded? Or on what basis is the decision made? And again, faithfulness, obedience, victory, control. We'll give an account for our actions. Now, again, I'm not suggesting even for a moment that these are the things that determine our salvation, but rather saved people serve, obey, and find themselves victorious over sin. We give an account for our actions, whether they are truly indicative of our position in Christ. So the fire of God's judgment will completely burn up the wood, the hay, the stubble. These are the sum and the substance of the things that we did that has little or no value. So then, it says in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. And of course, the second judgment is that of unbelievers who will be judged at the great white throne judgment that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. That judgment doesn't determine salvation either. Everyone at the great white throne judgment is an unbeliever who's rejected Christ and is therefore doomed to the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 12, 20, verse 12. But I'll have more to say about that when we come back. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Gerizzi. So glad you could join me on the program 
The number, 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. Gina, welcome to the program. Hi, Gino. Thank you. I want to change my question I was going to ask you. Okay. It has to do with um, the walk to Emmaus, when the two gentlemen were walking, and then Jesus appeared next to them, and they didn't recognize him, correct, as uh-huh. the risen Christ? Why was he, what is the theory or your opinion on why he was, why they didn't recognize him until they met up in Emmaus and finally broke bread with Jesus? Then, then he was recognizable to him, to them. Yeah, I, I think that, again, one of the reasons why they didn't recognize him is because Jesus, for whatever reason, veiled his identity. In other words, is it possible that Jesus has the ability to veil his identity? Now, again, there's a couple of other issues that are going on. Number one, he might be wearing something that that hides his face. Number two, uh, they don't expect Jesus to be alive. Remember, he's Mm -hmm. dead. He is dead. Dead people don't come back to life. And so... um, as they traveled, men joined him, and they didn't recognize them. And remember, he asked that question, hey, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk in Luke twenty four seventeen? And And they basically say, did you just fall off a potato truck or something? How could you be the only person that, who doesn't know what just happened? It's sort of like today, where imagine somebody says, who doesn't know that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? The whole world knows at this point, you know, um, and then he he basically says the story surrounding Jesus in the hopes that he would, in fact, be the Jewish Messiah, but that their hopes have been dashed. And so you'll you'll remember he begins a Bible study, he begins to relate to them from the scriptures. Now, this is really, I think, part of the important point of the story. It says, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe that what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things to enter the glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I want you to just think about this for just a moment. How much easier would it have been to go, guys, it's me. It's me. Look at me. It's me. But he doesn't. He is going to persuade them with what the Bible says prophetically about what was going to happen. In other words, can you imagine all of the people that you've ever talked to, or maybe you yourself have thought, how much easier would it be if Jesus would just show up? Why doesn't he just show up and look at me and go, look, Gina, it's me. But he, he doesn't. And then it, it says, as he walked, he taught them. And when they arrived at Emmaus, they stopped to eat, and then they asked Jesus to join them. He did. He breaks bread and blesses the meal. And it says in verse 31, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then it says this, Jesus vanished. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting, remember, for all this time, they've been walking away from Jerusalem. 
But now it's time to go back to Jerusalem because guess what? Jerusalem is where the empty tomb is. Jerusalem is where the disciples are. The Jerusalem is where the prophecies have been fulfilled. They found the 11, it says, and they said, it's true. The Lord is risen. So again, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus withholds the identity because he wants to set an example for every pastor who has to teach on Easter Sunday, like me, that I did for 30 years. Can you imagine finding 30 different sermons about the resurrection? How in the world am I going to tell this story over and over again from the scriptures? In other words, is my expectation that Jesus is going to show up on on on, on Easter Sunday? Yeah. But how am I going to convince people that he's really risen from the dead? Jesus is going to give me the tools that he that he models at that point. He is going to declare from the scriptures that everything that God said about the Messiah must of necessity come true. So I am thinking that is part of the point that he withholds his identity. He's going to emphasize the Old Testament prophecies that relate to Jesus and then provide the evidence for his claims as the risen Savior. And then all of a sudden he goes, oh, and by the way, it's me. (laughs) Very good. Okay, thank you so much, Gino. Isn't that amazing? Yes, it is. Hey, thank you for your call. Thank you. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. You know, one of my favorite Bible studies is Luke 24 and the story of the road to Emmaus. And, um, you know, I've had the great privilege of, of talking about the resurrection of Jesus for most of my life. But this, uh, the, the, the story of the road to Emmaus is one of my favorites. 303-873-1935. You know, when you read that passage of Scripture in Luke's Gospel, and you read the disciples' reaction to the lessons that Jesus is trying to teach them. They said in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked? The physical eyes were blinded to the identity of Jesus, but the eyes of faith were opened as Jesus opened the scriptures. Now, I want you to think about that the next time the person asks you, hey, what do you do at your church? Well, we teach the Bible. Is that all? Really? Jesus opens their eyes by opening the scriptures. Now, again, following this account, Jesus appears to his other disciples. He clearly is going to remove all doubt that he is alive. He promised that he would show himself to those who love him. In John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me 
will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That means make myself known. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus. 303-873-1935. It's interesting to me about the stories of being on the road, on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Damascus. That's going to be the place where Paul has his extraordinary vision and dramatic conversion. But it's going to take place in front of a bunch of people. In other words, Paul is going to relate his testimony in three different places in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, and in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, and in Acts chapter 26, 9 through 20. And all of those accounts, he, he sort of adds to the detail of the experience of coming into a real relationship with God. And um, it's interesting. He gives a public confession of his story about how he was Saul, the persecutor, and he becomes Paul, the apostle. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. The number is 303 303- 873-1935-303-873-1935. Years and years and years ago on the cover of TV Guide, there was an article or a cover that said God and television. And um, in the uh, in this TV article, this is at a time when, you know, Little House on the Prairie was still on and and touched by an angel and that kind of stuff. Um, And the viewers poll said that 56% believed religion doesn't get enough attention. And when asked, which of the 10 commandments do you think is the most violated on primetime TV? 32% voted do not commit adultery. Only 2% responded Worship only the Lord. And when asked from a list of primetime's most notorious villains back in the day, who do you think was the likely winner? In other words, who who do you think is most likely to go to hell? And the winner was Montgomery Burns, the the, the cartoon character from The Simpsons. In ancient times, people gathered around campfires or hearths in the homes and told stories that were handed down from previous generations. They created new stories in each generation. And it used to be, back in the day when I was growing up, when you had a limited amount, you know, you had three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS. They were the... The contemporary, they were the campfire. That's where stories were told of the kids growing up. 
and the stories were largely filled with sarcasm or humor or violence, but sometimes cynicism and despair. And when a few religious shows came on, they spoke about love and they spoke about hope and they spoke about courage and faith and commitment. And there was a group of people who said, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. People want to hear about love and hope and courage and faith. And when they started putting programs on TV that focused on those things, those ones got rave reviews. Why do you think Little House on the Prairie is still so popular in syndication and reruns? Why do you suppose Hallmark Channel goes over so very, very well? Many decades ago, Time Magazine featured its first all-print cover. On a black field in bold red letters, they wrote, is God dead? Question mark. And then a few years after that, well, time featured a picture and a painting, this time with their sort of version of Jesus. And um, the Time magazine said the title was The Search for Jesus. And the article featured a group of alleged scholars who argued that the Gospels can't be trusted to provide us with an appropriate, believable, truthful history of Jesus. They called themselves the Jesus Seminar. These so-called Bible scholars came to the conclusion that most of the New Testament stories are wild fantasies made up by desperate disciples. That, that it was literally written by followers of followers of followers who followed Christ. They rejected the virgin birth. They didn't believe that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, or at least they couldn't make the charges stick. Back in those olden days, O.J. was innocent. The Sermon on the Mount never happened, or at least not the way Jesus said and they denied the resurrection as an essential part of Christian faith. And in fact, the resurrection in their worldview may not have occurred at all. But is there evidence? Is there evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? What's interesting to me all these years later, evidence as it's defined in the Oxford American Dictionary is, number one, anything that establishes a fact or gives reason for believing something. Number two, statements made or objects produced in a court of law as proof or to support a case, unquote. John Singleton Copley, one of the great legal minds in British history and three-time High Chancellor of England, wrote, quote, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I can tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet, unquote. And so, as we fast approach Resurrection Sunday... Can we believe 
in a resurrection today? Is there meaning in life and in death? Where do you go for hope? I remember in a sermon that I preached, I asked the question, what is it that gives a widow courage as she stands beside a fresh grave? What is the ultimate hope of the cripple, the amputee, the abused, the burn victim? How can the parents of a brain-damaged or physically handicapped child keep from living their entire lives without becoming totally depressed? Why would anyone who is blind or deaf or paralyzed be encouraged when they think of the life beyond? How can we see past the martyrdom of some helpless hostage or devoted missionary? Where do the thoughts of a young couple go when they finally recover from the grief of losing their baby? Or how about when a family receives the tragic news that their little daughter was found dead or their dad died in a plane crash or their son overdosed from drugs? When you discover from a newspaper or a broadcast that someone you love is dead. What single truth becomes your focus? What is the final answer to pain, mourning, senility, insanity, terminal diseases, sudden calamities, fatal accidents? I'm hoping by now that you've guessed the answer. That in the end, It's the hope of a bodily resurrection. This is something that we talked about yesterday on the program. What Jesus said in John chapter 11 when he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. You know, Jesus hears the silent words we speak in the hidden recesses of our hearts. Jesus hears you, even when no one else is listening. It's interesting to me on resurrection morning, Jesus didn't go to church. He didn't go to synagogue. He went for a walk with friends. He had a Bible study with them. Perhaps the most amazing Bible study that's ever been given. And only two of his friends heard it. They went on a special walk. He went looking for a couple of friends who were confused and sad and broken. And the amazing thing is he went incognito. These friends of Jesus were upset because they thought Jesus was dead. But they were wrong. He was alive. And the fact that they didn't recognize him means Jesus did not wish to be recognized. So he shows up in disguise the Savior of the world, on Resurrection Sunday. He shows up for the most amazing reason, to provide hope for two people whose hopes and dreams had been dashed. Remember that. Remember that when you go to church on Easter morning. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.